Good evening, and I'd like to welcome you all to my Gresham College lecture on the growth mindset and the abundance mentality, which is on the power of learning, of continuous improvement, and of being willing to fail. Now, this is the sixth lecture in a series called Business Skills for the 21st Century on important skills for both business and life, but are seldom taught at school and university. And thank you very much to those of you who've supported my prior five lectures in this series. And if you haven't seen them, but they're of interest, you can find them on the Gresham College website. So today, most of the focus will be on the growth mindset, which, as I mentioned earlier, is about the power of learning. Now, traditionally, we actually think that learning is not so important because we think that our potential is limited by gifts that are given to us at birth through our genes. So you are born a great public speaker or a great athlete or a great mathematician. And indeed, the language that we have instills that mindset. For example, we think of a gifted child as if they were given the gift. No, they didn't have to work hard for it. Or somebody being a natural. Again, that suggests that they're born with it. Now, that isn't totally fatalistic, right? Effort and hard work still matters. But using an analogy, effort only allows us to reach our potential, which is given by a cup. So you've got a cup, the size of that cup is fixed at birth, and effort will allow you to fill that cup to the top. But in fact, there's a new view, which is that you can actually change your potential, which is the size of the cup. And this analogy comes from an excellent book called Peak by Anders Ericsson and Robert Poole, which I'll refer to many times in this lecture. So where is the evidence for this new view that you can actually develop talents you're not just gifted them? Well, one example is perfect pitch, which for a long time was seen as something that was a gift. But actually evidence suggests that it was more common among those who received musical training age three to five, so that suggests that it might be nurture rather than just nature. And it's also more common among speakers of tonal languages such as Mandarin. But actually, if you were from an Asian background and lived in the UK and US and you grew up speaking English, you were not more likely to have perfect pitch. So that suggested that it was speaking Asian languages rather than having Asian genes, which allows you to have perfect pitch. And in fact, there was an actual experiment where they took 24 children at the Ichionkai Music School in Japan, and they successfully taught all 24 children perfect pitch. And so this was something that you can actually learn rather than being gifted with. But you might be sceptical of this. You might think, OK, when you're a kid, right, you're still learning and you can still develop abilities. But when you're adults, right, you've stopped learning. You can't develop so much. But that's absolutely not true at all. So there's something known as the neuroplasticity of the brain, which the brain still keeps forming even when we're adults. And so we can still learn things. For example, let's think about marathons, right? They're run by adults, not by children. In 1908, Johnny Hayes won the Olympic marathon in two hours and 55 minutes and 18 seconds. That was seen to be an amazing achievement. Now, it's just over two hours, so nearly an hour faster. And in 1973, um, David Spencer set a record memorising 511 digits of pi. Now, 
the uh, the world record is 67,890, so orders of magnitude higher. And what is the underpinning between behind these developments? It's indeed what I mentioned earlier, the neuroplasticity of the brain, the fact that we can develop our brains and our abilities. And there's a famous study of uh, taxi drivers by Eleanor McGuire and various co-authors which found that the rear hippocampus of taxi drivers is particularly large, and that's the part of the brain which is associated with memory. So the idea is that taxi drivers weren't born with great memories, but having to learn the knowledge, which is the test that you need to take to become a taxi driver, where you need to learn lots of roads and landmarks, that caused them to expand the size of the brain. Now, if you attended my last Gresham lecture, on critical thinking, you will know to doubt this result, right? So that's a correlation, but that might not be causation because how do we know that it's taxi driving that caused the hippocampus to grow? It might just be any type of driving. And so this is known as emitted variables. We need to look and make sure it's taxi driving rather than driving in general, but that's what that study did. They looked at the hippocampus of bus drivers and found that it wasn't larger than the average person. And that makes sense, right? Because bus drivers do the same route all the time, whereas taxi drivers drive different routes every day. And so that's when increasing the memory was so much more important for taxi drivers. But there's something else that we need to be concerned with, which is reverse causality. So what causes what? Was it that training to become a taxi driver led to your brain developing? Or was it only those who had a big rear hippocampus to begin with chose to become taxi drivers because only they had the capacity to pass the knowledge test? So what the authors did was they looked at the difference when they started training and there was actually no difference in the rear hippocampus. The difference was only at the end when some passed the training or others dropped out. So it was the art of learning that actually allowed people to expand their memory. And it's not just for, for mental attributes, but it's also for physical talents as well that you can actually develop. So a study by Edward Taub and co-authors looked at the violinist, cellist and guitarist region of the brain, which controls the left hand, and found that it was significantly larger than for non-musicians. But there was no difference in the region controlling the right hand. Why? Because if you play the violin or cello or guitar, you need a lot of dexterity in your left hand because that you put on the strings and it controls the, uh, the tone. Whereas the right hand is used for bowing, what's used for strumming, and therefore less dexterity is required. So again, the interpretation is the act of practicing that changed the brain. And it wasn't just for a purely cognitive action, such as learning um, roads in London, but also for controlling dexterity. And so this underpins two different mindsets, which were made most uh, popular by an excellent book by Stanford psychologist uh, Carol Dweck. So she first starts by talking about what she calls the growth mindset. And here, this is the ability that this is the idea that your abilities are set in stone by the gifts you're apparently given at birth. And so if the fixed mindset is true, then there's two really damaging implications. So the first is that there's no need to try, right? Because if you're given this gift at birth, 
you'll succeed without effort. So there's no need to put in effort. And at the secondary school that I went to, well, you were given a grade from one to nine in terms of your achievement. And you're also given a letter grade from A to D in terms of your efforts. And actually, the grade that was most coveted was a 9D, maximum achievement with lowest effort. Why? Because that suggested you're a natural. You don't even need to try. And the kids that did try, they were known as tryhards or swats. And that's negative because that felt that meant that they just didn't have talent. They only could work hard. And also, there's no need to try because if you're not gifted, um, then there's actually no hope of, of, of achieving something. So regardless of whether you're gifted or not, don't try because it's your talent, not your effort, which will achieve a particular outcome. And another uh, negative implication is that, well, failure is bad because it suggests that you're low ability. So you don't want to fail because failure suggests that you were born with some deficiency. And so what this means is that you might avoid some activities you might fail at because you might not want to do public speaking, for example, because if you don't do well, that just suggests you don't have that talent. And even worse, it might suggest that you'd reduce effort so you can blame your failure on low effort rather than low ability. Right? Because you want to be seen as high ability, gifted people. So if we fail, we'd like to claim it's not because we're deficient in ability, we just didn't try. So you'll have a kid who strikes out at baseball and he'll say, I wasn't trying. Or you might have somebody who runs a half marathon and doesn't get a particular time and says, well, I, I just did it without training. Or maybe you give a client presentation and you say, oh, I just didn't prepare for the presentation. That's why it wasn't good. But that's a ridiculous attitude. Right. So if you enter a half marathon and you didn't train, that's embarrassing. But you entered this. It was your responsibility to train for it. And if you go to a client meeting and you don't prepare, that is unprofessional. We need to put the effort in. But this whole idea of a fixed mindset suggests that effort is bad because you don't want to pretend that uh, you don't want to admit that actually failure might be due to some low ability. And finally, you might not admit weakness by, by taking remedial courses. So when I started my PhD at MIT, I realized that my math background was weaker than other people. So I took a remedial math course. And I also realized that I needed to improve my public speaking. So I joined a public speaking society. And there's a stigma attached to that, because who goes to these remedial courses? It's people who have low ability. And again, if you're based on the fixed mindset, why right, it suggests that, well, you're just deficient in particular areas. And so that's something which has a stigma. Or even worse, you might take some bad, perhaps even fraudulent actions to hide uh, failure under performance. For example, in Enron, when, with Enron, when they were starting to underperform, they chose to cook the books and hide this rather than admit uh, the fact that financial performance was actually poor. And so why is it that this fixed mindset is, is so prevalent? Well, it may indeed be because of what we learn from when we're kids. So comic books or TV shows or films, they instill kids with the idea of gifted superheroes. So Spider-Man, right, Peter Parker, just happened to be spit bit by a radioactive spider. And that's how he got his talent and gift. 
And indeed, that's what we think is that we think that people who are, are talented are just special people who don't need to try. They're some sort of superior species to us. And therefore, we don't want to admit that we don't have a particular gift. That suggests we're an inferior species. So we won't try things that we won't succeed at. And that leads to all of the negative um, implications that I mentioned. And indeed, if we look at, say, reality TV shows, right, talent shows like Pop Idol or something, well, there, there's people who try really hard to get into the band and, and, and then they ridicule because they don't have talent. And that just suggests, well, if you have effort, but without talent, you go on these shows and you audition and it sounds really bad, well, then you shouldn't even try. So again, that's really damaging because it suggests, well, if you don't have some genetic abilities, don't try, you'll fail, you're just going to embarrass yourself. But what this lecture is about is about the growth mindset, the fact that your abilities can be enhanced through effort. And this is something that was backed up by the evidence on the changing size of the hippocampus or the changing size in the part of the brain which is responsible for dexterity. So on the one hand, right, this gives us great hope and great encouragement because it means that we can develop certain talents such as public speaking. But going back to Spider-Man, right, the famous quote from the movie is, with great power comes great responsibility. Given that we have the ability to develop talents and skills, we've got the responsibility to do that. We can't just blame the lack of um, a, a particular skill by saying, I wasn't born with it. You have the opportunity to try it and to develop it. And so, well, the first implication is that new skills uh, can be developed. So some people might think uh, they're not a natural athlete. Um, during this lockdown, I've been doing a lot of uh, workouts by a trainer called Jay Copley of Barry's Bootcamp. And the one I did yesterday was an extremely difficult challenge. But he said, well, I am just skin and bone and flesh, just like you, as in the clients. Um, so the difference is just the mindset with which he went through in order to be able to develop his, his ability. And um, he often sets us challenges. And he has this quote here. If you try and if you convince yourself you can't do something without any evidence, that's crazy. Try and if you fail after seven seconds, that's OK. Next week, you do 14 seconds, then 20. So, again, this is the idea that don't believe that you don't have a particular skill without trying. This is something that you can develop. Like we are all born as humans. Yes, there's more differences in genetics and so forth. But a lot of this is down to hard work. Are you willing to develop something, particularly in a, an ability that might scare you at the moment? But also it suggests that existing skills must be nurtured. So you might know of a number of stories of people such as some talented sportsmen when they're young and they just never fulfill their talent, their, their, their potential. Why? Because they thought it was just down to genetics. They didn't need to work at it. Okay. And so how do we develop this mindset, the growth mindset? How do we try to encourage it? By praising somebody's efforts, not their ability. So I told this story in my lecture on public speaking, but I think it's relevant, so I'll, I'll tell it again. So there was a time when I was a um, young assistant professor of finance at Wharton. I had to give a talk at Duke University and the University of North Carolina. And I gave a talk and the uh, a senior professor called John said to me afterwards, Alex, that was a great talk. You must have worked really hard at it. 
And I was really miffed by John's comment. I wish he'd said to me, oh, that was a great talk, Alex. You must be a natural public speaker. So the fact that he said you must have worked really hard on it suggests I was a tryhard. I was one of those swaps like uh, at school. But actually, John was absolutely right. The only way that I was able to give that semi-decent talk was because I'd enrolled myself in the public speaking club at MIT. I'd worked at my public speaking. I practiced that very talk many, many times with a tape recorder. And I'm using some methodology that I'm going to mention uh, later on in terms of putting it into practice. So it was the effort. I had no natural ability in public speaking. And John's comment instilled that in me and kept encouraging me to keep developing and working on it. Okay, so if the growth mindset is true, which it is backed on the evidence, how does this change how we should go about living our lives? So the first implication is it gives us the freedom to dare. Right, so if we can grow, right, then it means that actually failure is, is fine because failure is necessary on the path to growth. And indeed, one of the first activities that I ever did was playing chess. So I learned when I was five and then I ended up playing for the England junior team. And then when I was young, when I lost, I would burst into tears. But then the more and more games I lost, the more I realised that losing is just part of chess. In every game, unless there's a draw, you'll have a winner and a loser. It just happens. And in baseball, even the best teams who will win the World Series, they will only win 60% of their games. And the best batters, they will only successfully hit the ball 30% of time. So we need to understand that failure is part of life, as a quote from M. Scott Peck in the book The Road Less Travel says, once you know that life is difficult, then life is no longer difficult. So why is that important? So what does this mean? So first, I think it means the importance of encouragement. So why? So what does encouragement mean? So I'm actually giving the graduation speech to some uh, um, classes at uh, London Business School um, next month. And people said, oh, you should give an encouraging speech. Why? Because they were in the coronavirus. People need encouragement. But actually, I thought, well, what does the word encouragement actually means? So at the heart of it is courage. So what is courage? Courage is the willingness to try something that you might fail at. So the heart of courage is that you can only have courage to do something that you might fail at. I don't need courage to be able to um, beat somebody, uh, to beat a child at, at tennis. I'll be able to do that. Right. So if that's what courage is, then encouragement is different from what we typically think. Encouragement, we typically think, well, well, well you're going to win, you're going to succeed, you won't fail. But no, because that's not giving courage, because courage is the willingness to fail. So instead, encouragement is not telling somebody, you're great, you're going to succeed. Encouragement is telling somebody, you might fail, but that's okay. Right? And I think one of the most important people that we can encourage is actually ourselves to realise that actually failure is okay. So failure is useful in two ways. So one is what economists call exante. So before trying our hand at a particular skill, we need to be willing to fail because we will fail whenever we try something. Because based on the growth mindset, we will not 
have natural ability, we will need to develop it and therefore we'll, we'll fail at the start. And so this applies to, to many activities. So think of a, a group activity such as Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, where you're doing this against an opponent. Uh, and there's a great book on the growth mindset called The Art of Learning by Josh Waitskin, who used to be a world champion chess player, then became that at the martial arts. And he talks about in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, there's uh, Jiu-Jitsu, there are some athletes who, when they're tired at the end of practice, they choose the easiest opponents to beat because they can beat them. Others chose the hardest, and then studies found that the latter learned more. And this is also true for individual activities. So I learned skiing um, relatively late in life when I was a graduate student at MIT. And I wanted to improve my skiing, and I wanted measures of improvement. And so my measure of, imp of improvement was how many times I fell. So if I fell fewer times on Tuesday than I did on Monday, then that would suggest I'd made progress. But that's crazy, right? Because there was a way of not falling, right? You could not fall by skiing on the easiest slopes. Or if I would ski the same exact same run, I could just reduce my speed, I could turn more often and fall fewer times. So I designed, defined success as the absence of failure, but that's crazy, right? Because the goal of skiing is to have fun, to develop your talents so, and so on, and to be so scared of falling meant that I was not able to, de to develop. As JK Rowling said in her famous Harvard commencement speech, it is impossible to live without failing at something unless you live so cautiously that you might as well have not lived at all, in which case you fail by default. Okay, so what's the second implication of the growth mindset is the value of feedback, because if you can indeed get better, then feedback is what's important for, for self-improvement. And so last time I talked about exante, so before trying a new thing, you should be willing to fail. But here, this highlights that failure is useful ex post. So after you've tried the new activity, you can learn from failure to inform your skills development. And this is indeed why artificial intelligence is, is so powerful, because it can learn, fail often and learn what works and learn what doesn't work. And so when I, but often we, we don't want to learn from our failures, we want to blame failures on other people or external circumstances, right? A football team, if you lose, the manager will say, oh, I had my tactics right, but the opposition cheated or the referee made some bad decisions. But that's bad because he won't be able to improve the tactics for the next time. And indeed, that was the case with me for skiing. So the first few times if I was to fall over when skiing, I would blame there being a patch of ice there, or I blame maybe there was a snowboarder coming and I need to turn in order to avoid him or her. But that was just lying to myself. So after I'd got over that and I realized that actually falling and failing was fine, I would start to pinpoint what was it which caused me to fall? It was my fault every time I fell. And I would realize, did I do something wrong with my shoulders or my technique, or did I have my weight on the wrong foot? And that, allowed me to pinpoint what it was that I did, not the ice, not another skier, what I did to cause me to fall and therefore to get better. But again, this is something that not everybody wants to do because they want to try to blame the failure on others 
Why? Again, because of the fixed mindset, the idea that the failure means that you don't have the talent, you might be just a lower species. So what this suggests is that we should actively seek feedback and take all feedback seriously. So this might mean that after giving a presentation at, at work, just ask your colleagues, how did I do? What did I do? What could I have done better? And some of the feedback that you'll get, you might not agree with. And maybe not every single thing they'll tell you will, will be right. Sometimes you'll need the courage of your own convictions. But even if 90% of what they say could be wrong, maybe 10% is right. And the whole idea that it's really important to take the feedback seriously and to try to find out, well, what are the most valid points, even though people don't like to listen to criticism. So going back to um, my fitness instructor, Jay, he was he said that one of his friends is a muse as an artist manager who manages one of the best, the most famous um, musicians in the world. He, he wouldn't tell us his name, but if we were to um, hear the name, we would immediately recognize the name. And that musician, after every concert, after he or she walks off stage, asks, what could I have done better? This person is a world famous name. He's probably done hundreds and thousands of concerts. Yet despite that, well, actually because of it, keeps asking, what can I be doing better? And this is actually a reason for the success. It's not that he or she thinks because I'm so successful, I've stopped growing. Even if you're a world famous superstar, you can still experience personal growth. And okay, sometimes you might not always be able to get feedback from other people but get in the habit of providing self-feedback. So as I mentioned in the public speaking lecture, right, what you can do is give a practice talk and video yourself. And that's really painful. Like people don't like to see themselves public speaking or if you're learning to sing, record yourself. People don't like to hear themselves sing back, but that is indeed how you're gonna get better is through just going through the uncomfortable process of seeing what you did wrong and then improving based on that. Another thing which is useful is to, to, is to give feedback to others. And the worst feedback I think you can give to children, or perhaps to yourself, is to say, well, failure doesn't matter. Because if it doesn't matter, then people won't try. So they do matter, right? But they don't mean that you lack ability, right? So this is why we shouldn't beat ourselves up about feedback, we, about failure. We need to be willing to fail. But we need to sort of have the balance between two things. Number one, we need to be willing to fail to try difficult things. But then failure should hurt because failure should then be an opportunity to learn from our mistakes and get better so that we don't fail the next time or we fail at least fewer times. So every time I fell when I was skiing, I wanted to make sure I didn't fall again. And so I wanted to figure out what was it which was bad about my technique that I would want to address the next time. But address it by improving my technique, not address it by skiing on an easier slope. Now, how do we then put this into practice? I've given you two implications, which is willingness to fail and the value of feedback. How do we do this? Now, there's a very famous book called Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell, who says all we need is time and practice. So he has what's known as the 10,000 hours rule, which says, and I read, if you look at any kind of cognitively complex field, from playing chess to being a neurosurgeon, we see this incredibly consistent pattern that you cannot be good at that unless you practice for 10,000 hours, which is roughly 10 years, 
if you think about four hours a day. Now, I mentioned in the last lecture on critical thinking that this is actually not at all backed up by the evidence. But because of confirmation bias, people have lapped up this idea and think, I can just go through 10,000 hours and go through the motions and just do anything, even skiing on the easy slopes, and I'll get better. As I'll explain shortly, the, it, that's not the case. In order to get better, it takes training with a, with a coach, with an instructor, and doing things which are painful. But why this, um, this book has been, I think, very damaging is it just suggests you can go through the motions. So if we take a critical look at the evidence, and actually the papers that Gladwell cites are by the same Anders Ericsson, who wrote the Peak book I mentioned earlier, what did Ericsson actually find? We found that the best violinists did practice for 10,000 hours by age 20, but 7,400 hours by age 18. So why was it that Gladwell said 10,000 hours? Right, that sounds a nice round number, but why do we look at the hours you practice by age 20 versus age 18? But there's nothing special about looking at a, a violinist age 20. So other musicians, so pianists, they win competitions still age 30. And also Ericsson's study focused only on violinists. So the idea that it applies to any cognitively complex field such as playing chess or becoming a neurosurgeon, that's not backed up by the evidence. And also there's a logical error in saying the best violinists practice for 10,000 hours. That doesn't mean that 10,000 hours makes your best violinist. Any more than all good CEOs have two legs doesn't mean if you have two legs, you'll become a great CEO. It may well be the best violinist practice for 10,000 hours and those 10,000 hours are painful and focused and involved an expert teacher, not just any types of 10,000 hours. And indeed, that was what the research found, as I'm going to explain in the next slide. Now, you might think, well, am I being a bit uncharitable to, to Gladwell? Because the book had some many positive um, ideas that, yeah, you do need to practice. You, it's not just due to genetics, so you should work hard and have effort and develop the growth mindset. So I do give him a lot of credit for that. However, the focus on 10,000 hours is bad for two reasons. First, right, if you don't have 10,000 hours to spend on an activity, you might think, well, I must just give up, right? But actually, the evidence doesn't suggest there's a special thing where you're no good, then you hit 10,000 hours, then you become good. Well, instead, practice and many things could be continuous. And so even if you only have 1,000 hours, still try, right, because you'll improve. And even if you hit the 10,000 hour cutoff, it doesn't mean that you should not keep trying. Indeed, the musician that I referred to in the last slide keeps asking for feedback, even though he or she is, is really, really famous. And the second and the most important reason why this 10,000 hours idea is, is misleading is that it wasn't just total activity that mattered, but what Ericsson calls deliberate practice. So what distinguished the best violinists from the second tier violinists was not actually the differences in the hours that they spend in orchestra, in group practice, which was fun, but actually solo practice, which is the type of practice which they all reported to be less fun. And similarly, there was another study on chess, which found that it wasn't just playing games, which made people better, but again, solo practice and self-study, which is hard, which is painful, but that's what actually improves your ability.
Okay, so what is deliberate practice then? So it's one which has three different characteristics. So the first is it's purposeful. So purposeful means that it's targeted. You're not just going through the motions and, and say, let's say if you're public, doing public speaking, you don't just rehearse the talk. You'll do the talk with a clear goal in mind so you can assess whether that practice session was successful. So it might be, I'm going to do this talk again, but particularly focus on my body language or my vocal variety or to say, um, fewer times. So this is what we need is not just go through the motions. There will be a target for this. Now, when I was at university, I used to row and we often needed to do these 5,000 kilometer, 5,000 meter erg tests on the rowing machine. And it used to be that I didn't want accountability. So I would actually take my towel and put my towel on the scoreboard, which said how fast we were going. Otherwise, if I knew that I was going close to a personal best, I would be accountable. And I'd have to work hard to try to achieve that. And that would really hurt. So I just covered this and then I could think I'm just going to go at 80% effort and then see my time at the end. But that was really bad because that failed to have a goal which I needed to achieve in order to have a successful practice. The second thing which Erickson's evidence found was that it had to be challenging and out of your comfort zone. So what he found was elite figure skaters, they devoted more time to difficult jumps and spins than the ones they hadn't mastered. And again, the violinist that he wrote about um, reported solo practice to be least enjoyable, but it was that solo practice which led to the most improvement. And this wasn't actually studied in, um, Gladwell's, in Gladwell's book. For example, he says the Beatles spent 10,000 hours to become successful, but he included playing in concerts, which is fun, as part of those 10,000 hours, when actually what, what we need to include is the deliberate challenging practice which puts us out, out of our comfort zone, where when we're doing it at the time, we might fi find it's painful or unpleasant, but actually that is what actually stretches ourselves. For example, if you're doing 50 push-ups, right, it's the push-ups between 40 and 50 which cause the muscle to rupture, and then the muscle regrows and becomes stronger. It's really one to 40 don't have as much of an effect so it really is that last part which gets you um, the, the, the most progress. And finally, deliberate practice was informed. So um, what Erickson highlighted was the importance of, of a teacher who knows established methods. So again, with public speaking, when I did my TED talk, I worked with a public speaking coach. Even though I'd done a lot of public speaking because I'd been a professor for a long time, I knew that I could still get better. And again, with, with athletics or sport, just to use a trainer, somebody who knows established methods, who's willing to give feedback and willing to give harsh feedback. They're not there to be your friend. They're to be they're there to be your coach. And sometimes, yeah, maybe you won't always be able to afford a teacher. So that's why it's important for you to be able to give yourself feedback, for example, recording a, a public speech that you're practicing and then playing it back. Now. You might think, well, is there a little bit of a contradiction that I, between the things I've said, is I've said you can develop loads of new talents, right? You've got the growth mindset. However, each thing that you want to develop, you need to devote substantial time and energy to doing so. So not only do we have to practice, but needs to be deliberate and painful practice. But here's the way to balance this. 
is a quote from a great interview called 10 Questions by Professor Laurie Hodrick. I've mentioned this in prior lectures, but if you haven't seen them, if you have five minutes this weekend, I would just read her 10 Questions interview in Financial Times, which gives me, which gave me some life lessons, which I've always remembered. And she was asked, what is your greatest lesson learned? She said, you can do everything you want to and be everything you want to be, but not all at once. So often we get excited by loads of things and want to start learning a new language or learning public speaking and an instrument and a new sport. But if we try to do those all at the same time, we wouldn't be able to devote the significant time and energy to improve in any of them. So it may well be that there's different seasons in your life. This season here, I'm going to focus on public speaking. Another season, I'm going to focus on learning this musical instrument. But whatever you just choose to do, don't just go through the motions, invest time in it and invest potentially money to have a trainer, somebody who gives you feedback. Third implication is to encourage the growth mindset in others. So like John did to me when I gave the sport, when I gave the talk, praise people for their effort and not their talent. Because if he said, oh, you're a natural public speaker, Alex, then when I had to give my TEDx talk, then I would have probably not gone with the public speaking coach and it would have stayed a TEDx talk. Luckily for me, I worked with this great coach and then the TEDx talk was elevated to the TED main stage. Also, just emphasize the ability to grow. And there was a great experiment um, which was done by the Behavioral Insights team which is the nudge unit of uh, which of the um, UK government. And incidentally, that's linked to my Gresham lecture series next year, which is on the psychology of finance. But let's get back to today's topic. But what they did was an experiment of a careers advisory service to adults. So the Education Development Trust offers this. They give you advisory services, but 30% of people who are unemployed and who would benefit from the career advice, they just didn't attend. And so what they did was three different um, treatments. First, some set of people got an information only message, which says uh, your uh, next meeting is on Tuesday at 10.30 a.m. Then there was a message which gave that, but also attendance planning. Your meeting is on Tuesday at 10.30 a.m. You should put this in the diary or something like that. But the third was a message on self-efficacy on highlighting the fact that people have the ability to grow. And this message would say something like this. Hi, Sarah. No one is born with a perfect career. Time and effort can boost your skills and CV. We'll help you get started tomorrow at 10 a.m. Tom, National Career Service. And that showed that they, people were 24% less likely to miss an appointment with that third message, highlighting the importance of personal growth. Otherwise, there might be people think who think, well, I had a hard start in life and I don't have a job now. I don't have skills. Maybe I'll never get a career that I'll find fulfilling. And so this message on self-efficacy had a significant effect on people coming and attending the appointment. OK, so in the next part of the talk, I'm going to change tack and talk about the abundance mentality, which is linked to the growth mindset. But it's more about how you interact with others rather than uh, just yourself. So just like the fixed mindset versus the growth mindset, I'm going to contrast two mentalities, the scarcity mentality and the abundance mentality. And again, there's a fixed versus growth element to it, 
But again, it's in terms of how you deal with other people. So the scarcity mentality views the resources or happiness that there are in the world as a fixed pie. And that pie can be given to you or that pie can be given to other people. And again, if the idea is that resources or happiness are scarce, they're fixed, then anybody who does well makes you angry because you think they've got a greater part of the pie. And therefore, if the pie is fixed, then your slice of the pie is less. So this is known as many things. Tall poppy syndrome is one where you don't like the tall, where the tall poppies, which grow higher than others, they're the ones that get clipped down by, by the lawnmower. Or it's sometimes known as the crab mentality when you've got crabs which are in, let's say, a, a jar. If one crab tries to climb out of it, other crabs will pull um, him or her back down. Uh, and this is extremely damaging because what this means is that people are in competition and this is not healthy competition. This is deliberate sabotage rather than using competition to inspire you. And so satirist PJ O'Rourke uh, had this quote, in this zero-sum universe... There is only so much happiness. The idea is that if we wipe the smile off the faces of people with prosperous businesses and successful careers, that will make the rest of us grin. So why is that such a negative mentality? First, well, the main thing is that it's difficult to feel happy for others even our friends or especially our friends, because, well, we think, well, that then if our, our friends achieve something, that might be the, at the expense of us. So let's say we're at business school and we're going after a particular job, right? Given that our friends are perhaps even more likely to go after the same jobs as us, if they get the offer, then there's fewer offers to go to us. Now, we could rationalise that by saying, well, friends are a benchmark for what's achievable. So if somebody else who goes to my school gets this job that I should have got it, and if I don't, then that means I'm a failure. But it could be that they're running a different race, right? They could just have different talents from you. And as I mentioned in my second lecture on finding purpose in your career, right, people will have different talents and passions based on what they're, they're, they're interested in. They could be running a different race. So if I am to jog in Hyde Park tomorrow, I will pass some people. I don't, I'm not going to think I'm better than them. Right, It could be that I'm running 2K and they're running 10K. Or maybe other people will, will pass me and I don't feel embarrassed about it because maybe they're just doing a different type of run. Maybe they're doing a sprint workout and I'm doing an endurance workout. I know that they're running a different race. Now, that's easy for me to do in Hyde Park, but in our careers, it's so easy to compare ourselves and therefore to feel unhappiness when other people do well because we think that, Happiness is fixed, it's scarce, so somebody else being happy means that I'm unhappy. So let's flip this around. So what is the alternative mindset? It's called the abundance mentality. And this is highlighted by this book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, by Stephen Covey, which is my favourite business book of all time. I refer to it many times in the prior lectures in the series. And what this highlights is the fact that resources or unhappiness are unlimited. Right? If somebody else is, is happy, that doesn't mean that I'm going to be less happy. Yes, it's true that in life, there are certain things which seem to be zero sum. So let's say if my colleague wins the award for best teacher at London Business School, then I can't win that best teacher award. So you might think, well, there's fixedness in that 
there's only one award. But if I go back to my second lecture, which was on finding purpose in your career, the reason for choosing a career is because you're particularly passionate about it. So I just love teaching. I love passing on information to other people and them using that information just to, to better themselves. And if somebody else achieves that as well, that doesn't detract from, from me doing this. I am still very fulfilled in my ability to teach and what I get out of it. Somebody else enjoying that even more doesn't diminish the, the purpose that I get for this myself. So again, if what drives us is not extrinsic rewards, which I admit are scarce, but intrinsic enjoyment, that's something where there is an abundance of it is unlimited. And also, why is this useful? This gives us freedom to serve other people. Right? Because if we see things being in competition, we don't want to help others. Because if we help others, then their slice of the pie goes up, and then our slice becomes down, goes down. But if indeed happiness is unlimited, then we do have the freedom to serve other people that it's not going to cost us. It's actually probably going to make us more fulfilled. There's a famous um, study, which is called, if money doesn't make you happy, then you probably aren't spending it right. So why is that? Right? There's all, often the phrase, money can't buy you happiness, but that's actually tr untrue. But it can buy you happiness only if you spend it in the right way. And what it found is that if you spent your money on things for yourself, they will typically not help you, particularly if they are things. So let's say new furniture or new double glazing or something. Instead, if it's something which is an experience, then it indeed does lead you to, to being great, more happy. Why? Because experiences are shared with other people. And those experiences, you're helping other people to be happy. And that also helps you be happy because you're not in competition. In fact, it's symbiotic. And also... If you spend your money on things for other people, gifts for other people, the research suggests that actually that increases your happiness more than if you just spend it on yourself. So how can we put this into practice? I'm just going to focus on only one thing, just in the interest of time. And this is the importance of service. So actually helping other people, which we have the freedom to do when we realise that we're not in competition. Now, in good middle-class living, people will still engage in service and help each other. But in good middle-class living, people will help each other only if in the back of their mind, they think they might get something in return. So if they do somebody a favour, maybe they could be repaid later. But true service is about helping people without expecting anything in return because we realise that the pie is not fixed. And this goes to something that I mentioned in my very first ever Gresham lecture on purposeful business in October 2018. There, I said that a purposeful business is one that invests in employees, it invests in reducing its carbon footprint, it invests in serving communities, not to get a good public image, not for instrumental reasons, but for intrinsic reasons, just because it cares about the environment. And again, what this suggests here is that we are free to serve, to help other people just for intrinsic reasons, because we want to help others, not because we're going to be instrumentally benefiting later. So if you buy that, you might think, OK, yeah, I want to serve, but I've got really limited time. So how am I going to achieve this? Well, there's a couple of things that I'd suggest. So the first 
is um, in lecture two of this series, or sorry, in lecture one of this series on time management, is to come up with a personal mission statement of what's really important to you. And that needs to be focused. So for me, my mission statement, as I shared, was to use rigorous research to influence the practice of business. So I love anything with a practical bent to it. And that's why I love giving this lecture series on business skills for the 21st century, even though it's not linked to my main finance job, because it's still based on rigorous research. I've gone through the evidence for things such as the growth mindset and it's the practitioners. And so I'm going to do a lot of that service, but I might not do as much academic mentorship of, of people doing PhD theses just because time is more limited. So I'm going to focus my service on things with practitioner implications. The second is this bullet point of gifts of unequal value. You might think, well, what does that mean? Well, let me contrast it with something. So let's go back to finance. And finance is about assets of equal value. Well, if you have a stock worth £100 and you have a bond worth £100, those two things will trade in financial markets because they have equal value. They are assets of equal value. But service is not about financial markets. Service is about giving gifts of unequal value. Things that are worth far more to the recipient than they cost you. And actually, let me break this down into two parts. Let's first think about gifts. The idea of thinking about service as giving gifts is, I think, a really useful mindset change, because what it suggests is that to serve and to help others, it's not just about somebody asking you for a favour and then you saying yes to it. It's actually being proactive and thinking, well, what gifts can I give? What are the abilities that I have and the talents that I have and how I can use this to help others? So it involves proactivity, it involves awareness and looking up and seeing, asking ourselves the question, what is in my hand? Like, what are the unique talents and abilities that I have? And how can I use this to serve wider society? And indeed, we've seen some of this in the coronavirus crisis. Like for some people, what is in their hand is the fact that they're able-bodied. And so there are people offering to do grocery shopping for their elderly neighbours. Or for others, what is in their hand is um, the fact that they're, they're financially more stable. So um, one of my friends is a lawyer and he's advanced purchased 300 coffees from his local coffee shop just to allow them to provide them with some liquidity. And again, it wasn't the coffee shop that came to him. It is that he was proactive. He thought, what is a gift of unequal value? Yeah, 300 coffees, maybe that costs 500 pounds or something. Yeah, that's a lot of money, but that's worth more to them than it is to me. And so I'm going to give this as gift. And that last part is what I mean by unequal value is the idea of giving something which is worth much more to the recipient than it costs you. This is something I've called in my, my book, Grow the Pie, the principle of multiplication. What we give is something that multiplies many times. And so the advanced purchases is one example. Going and doing grocery shopping is, is another example, but perhaps a very powerful example and one which is often underplayed by rational academics like me, is words. You think they're, they're cheap, but actually they can be extremely powerful. So somebody who um, is a delivery driver, maybe just delivering some um, parcel to you if you live on the fifth floor, 
to say something like, well, thank you so much for coming all the way and delivering this to the fifth floor, when it could have been that you would have left it in the reception. Something like this, which is sincere, they might not cost us much, but they mean a lot to other people. But again, we need that proactivity and that awareness to realise that in some cases, words can actually be very meaningful. So this I've talked about in the terms of a relationship between like two people. So I can choose to give a gift to this coffee store or I could choose to help this elderly neighbour. But what about within an organisation? So people often will say to me, well, Alex, you talk about purpose, you talk about service and helping others. But the organisation that I'm in is just a really negative organisation. So the culture is just toxic. However, you can still apply this idea of multiplication within an organisation. Why? One of the great things that we've seen in the coronavirus crisis is the whole idea of multiplication in that one person's actions will then inspire others to do the same. For example, Sir, Sir Tom Moore, the amazing captain who's raised, I think, £30 million through doing laps of his garden, that has then catalyzed other people to think selflessly and to help others. And I think that is the same within a, within a company is that even in perhaps some of the most toxic cultures, you might have the silent majority who actually want the organisation to be much better and much more humane, but they're just unwilling to stick their head up because really the, the, the status quo is, is different. But a couple of people, by acting positively, can create a tipping point and activate the silent majority. So I don't think it was that pre-coronavirus everybody was self selfish and now everybody became selfless but it's the actions of people such as to assert on more or within my friend group i know friends who've advanced purchased coffees or are buying groceries from the neighbors and that then inspires me to do other things so just to close with one final example before i wrap up so when i was at morgan stanley an investment bank that's that's a difficult environment because you're working extremely long hours and as analysts, which was my job, you're right at the bottom of the food chain, at least among the bankers, but there are still people who work for you. And because as an analyst, you're right at the bottom, you're getting so much pressure, often you might then let out that steam on the people who work for you. And so those are people in other departments. For example, we had a graphics department where if you needed help with sort of formatting some slides for presentation and doing graphics, you would ask them to do that. And these people would often get really abused because if the analyst needed to get a presentation in by a certain time, they would come down on the graphics department like a ton of bricks in order to make sure that they did the job quickly. And if, if they made mistakes, then they'd get really angry. So one thing I did was that if somebody did a good job, I would um, find out from the people at the front desk of graphics who assigned the job, who this person was, what was their name, and also what was the name of their boss. And so I would call them and say, oh, hi, um, hi, Gavin, this is Alex. You just did a job for me. I just want you to know that job was extremely good and it was good for all of these reasons. Uh, and I'd also write to that person's boss. And, and I didn't know this, but the other analysts heard me because you, you sit on a floor. Uh, you don't have your own office when you're right at the bottom. You, you sit in, uh, in an open plan and other people would hear me and then start to do things like that themselves. And so that small thing would actually change the culture and then actually mean that we would try to treat other people um, better within the organisation. I think small things like that 
even though I was right at the bottom of the, of the food chain, could actually have a multiplicative effect and actually help other people. And so this is why I think it starts with the smallest of, of things. So one of my former students was in the US Army, and he said, well, why do soldiers train in obstacle courses, right? Real life battle is much more difficult than an obstacle course. But he says, well, if we can't just even get things right in an obstacle course, then there's actually no hope of actually us getting it right when we're in real life for battle. So starting in these small things just gets us into the habit of actually achieving big things. And this is why I think this growth mindset is something that we always need to practice, even things which are small, such as, let's say, doing a workout or doing the 5,000 meter rowing test. Well, that is not as daunting as giving a presentation in front of a, a very large client. But if we were willing to improve and to be accountable for small things like that, then in something large, it will also have an effect. So how you do anything affects how you do everything. So I'll end with one final quote from Mother Teresa, which is, few of us can do great things, but all of us can do small things with great love. So many of the things that I've talked about in this entire lecture series might seem big, which is learn to do great, be good at public speaking or learn to be great at exercise and mental and physical wellness. But actually, a lot of these things are achieved with small steps. And that is the same with service. Okay, so that concludes um, the lecture on the growth mindset and the abundance mentality. Thank you so much for those of you who've attended this lecture and also those who've, uh, who've seen all the other ones. And if this was useful to you, then please do share it with others. So why it's a huge pleasure for me to give this free public lecture series is to pass on this knowledge to, to people and hopefully influence the way that they, they do business. And if you're able to play your part in that by recommending it to others that you think would benefit from it, that would be much appreciated. Thank you very much to everybody.